The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Joshua 23. The title of my message for you this evening is Finishing Strong, finishing strong. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this will be the seventh and final study in this series. And we've teased out all of these life lessons over the course of the last seven weeks, these life lessons from this man named Joshua. From him, we've learned how to linger in the presence of God, how to pursue a vibrant prayer life, We've learned how to be led by the Spirit of God, how to walk and take steps of faith. And tonight, we're going to draw out another lesson from Joshua's life as we skip ahead to the end of his story here in Joshua 23. But as we set things up, let me give you the context for what we're about to read because we're jumping all the way from chapter 5 to chapter 23. So the, the whole book of Joshua, it divides itself neatly into basically three subdivisions or sections. The first part of the book, that would be chapters 1 through 12, focuses on the Israelites' conquest of Canaan and, and how they drove out, starting with Jericho and the residents there and then moving into the south and then moving finally up into the north. They drove out the inhabitants of Canaan and took possession of the land. That's chapters 1 through 12. And then beginning in chapter 13 and going all the way through chapter 22, you have the division of the land. And so there were these 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And God had, he had uh, provided a specific portion of land for each tribe. And so chapters 13 through 22 describes how that land was divided up. Then as we come to chapters 23 and 24, the last two chapters of the book named Joshua. These two chapters are dedicated to two different addresses or speeches that Joshua made at the end of his life. And so the first speech is given to the leaders of the nation. He assembles all of the elders and all of the leaders and he addresses them first. But then in the 24th chapter, he gathers the whole nation and he gives his final remarks to him and then he goes on to be with the Lord. And if I were to give a title to these two speeches that Joshua gives that we find here at the end of the book, I might title them How to Finish Strong, for that's the theme that emerges. And Joshua was well equipped to speak on this subject because He's not just somebody who started out great, but he was one of the rare few individuals who also finished strong. And that's saying something, because you know as well as I do, that good examples are hard to come by these days. I mean, it's, it's one thing to start out great, and a lot of people have great starts, but oftentimes they fizzle towards the end, and a great start doesn't guarantee a great finish. You know, we're getting ready to turn the, the page over and enter into a brand new year. And, and with the new year comes New Year's resolutions. And how many of you are a fan of making New Year's resolutions? Show your hands. I certainly am. Okay. Okay. I love it. Both of us will. <laughs> this is so great. You're like, no, I gave that up. 
Well, you're in the minority. I guess 91 million Americans make New Year's resolutions. But I read just this past week a troubling statistic that said about 70 million of those who make New Year's resolutions break them within the first week. Can you believe that? More than two-thirds. I mean, all you have to do is go to a gym to confirm these statistics. In January, parking is tough and the gyms are packed. You can't find a machine. But come December, or maybe even February, you can find parking easily. And it just goes to show that a great start is a wonderful thing. But what we need are more finishers. Somebody say amen. And that's not just true with regards to these resolutions that we make, but it's, it's true with regards to our faith, wanting to finish strong. Sadly, I've known many Christians over the years who have fizzled out somewhere along the way. They started out so great, but they didn't finish well. So we want to know, how do you finish well? And, and it's important for us to consider this because, hey, at the end of the day, we're all going to finish. You will finish. The only question is, how? And what we discover is there are two options. You can either finish strong or you can finish wrong. And in this farewell speech that Joshua delivers here in chapter 23 of the book that bears his name, he offers to us three keys to finishing strong. Let's go ahead and dive into our text beginning there in verse 1. It says, after a long time had passed... And the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them. Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all of Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and he said to them, I'm very old, and you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you." In the first verse, we're given this clue that Joshua and the Israelites had received peace in this season of time. And he's very old. He's advanced in years. And by the way, Joshua's age becomes a running theme throughout his speech. As I mentioned, it comes up in verse 1. And then if you jump down to verse 3, he begins his speech by flatly stating, I'm very old. And that's the first clue how you know he's old. He doesn't try to grab everyone's attention. He doesn't use a pithy story or a clever quote to try to hook the crowd. He just flatly states, I'm old, so listen to me. And I kind of appreciate the guy for that. He references references his age a third time if you jump down to verse 14 where he says, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm getting ready to die. Now you have to remember, he's not speaking hyperbolically here, but he really is old. Joshua and Caleb were the oldest people in Israel by at least a margin of 20 years, but more probably by closer to 40 years. Can you imagine? the, The next person behind you is 40 years younger than you. Why do I say that? Well, it's because 
Only Joshua and Caleb, of all the Israelites, were allowed to, of the previous generation, go into the promised land. Remember, because of their rebellion, the rest of the Israelites passed away in the wilderness. And so Joshua and Caleb are literally uh, relics from a bygone era. These guys must have looked like they were older than dirt to everyone else. The commentaries I referenced said that Joshua was around 110 years old at this point in his life. He may have belonged to a different era, but that didn't mean he, had, he didn't have anything to offer the next generation. You know, there are some difficult things about growing older, to be sure. Somebody say amen if that resonates with you. It becomes harder to remember things. Amen. Your body doesn't always respond or work the way you want it to. And for us guys, it's like you start losing hair in the places where it's supposed to grow, and you start growing hair in the places where it has no business being. You know what I'm saying? I found this list that says... You know you're getting old when, and it fills in the blank. You know you're getting old when you and your teeth don't no longer sleep together. You know you're getting old when you try to straighten out the wrinkles in your socks and you discover you aren't wearing any. That's kind of gross, right? You know you're getting old when your back goes out, but you stay home. You know you're getting old when it takes two tries to get up from the couch. I'm in that camp. And then you know you're getting old when it takes longer to rest than it did to get tired. <laughs> okay, so the, the disadvantages of growing older are well documented, and clearly there are some. But there are some perks as well. And one of the biggest advantages to, to growing older, besides the discount at Denny's, is all the life experience you have to draw from. You have that much more of a history with God. And so Joshua's history with God gave him a unique vantage point from which to speak on the topic of life. He'd been through some stuff. Anybody know what I'm talking about? He'd seen some things. He'd experienced the miraculous to a degree that none of the other generation had. And so in this speech, he passes on a few of the most important lessons that he learned along the way. And if you're keeping notes. The first one is this, keep going. That's the theme that emerges to me in these first five verses, and that's the first fill in the blank in our outline. Keep going. You know, Israel had come a long way, and in a short amount of time, they were able to conquer nearly all of the land God promised to give them. And so after years of bloodshed and fighting and war, they were finally able to enjoy, according to verse 1, a season of rest from all their enemies. However, Joshua's fear was that now that the fighting was drawing to a close, a degree of complacency might settle upon the host of Israel's camp, and, and that might keep them from realizing or stepping into the fullness of what God had pledged to give him. And that's why he exhorts the, the children of Israel to keep going and finish the job. And he begins there in verse 3 by reminding them of what they already know. God has shown up in our past. Somebody say amen to that. And that's what Joshua says. He says, the Lord, your God, has fought for you. You guys know this. Now, they still had to go in and fight the enemy, that is, the, the armies of Israel. 
But it was clear to Joshua and to everyone else that really it was the Lord who was the one who had brought the victory. It might have been Joshua's hand on the sword, but it was the Lord who drove out Israel's enemies. That fact had been driven home on several different occasions, starting with their improbable victory over Jericho. I mean, we talked about this in our study last week. Walls aren't supposed to come down just because people shout, but those walls did, and it was a precursor for how all of their battles would go. As they submitted to the Lord, he would fight the battles for them. And we see that all throughout the book of Joshua. I want to tell you about one more experience. This is a a fantastic story that just highlights the hand of God working in the lives of the Israelites. You find it in Joshua chapter 10. And on that occasion, Israel found themselves fighting against their bitter foes, the Amorites. And the Bible says this about that war, that the Lord threw them, that is the Amorites, into confusion before Israel, and that they defeated them in a great victory. So they get confused. They start to fight each other, and Israel just gets go in and mop up what God had already brought to them. And as the Amorites then began to flee, Israel was hot on their heels, pursuing them. And this is what the Bible says in Joshua chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And get this, more died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. So now the Amorites are fleeing, and the heavens open, and hail comes down upon them, more dying from the hail than from the swords of the Israelites. And Joshua sensing and seeing what the Lord is doing, how he's delivering his enemies into the Israelites' hands, he, in the presence of all of Israel, boldly says, son, stand still. And in that moment, God caused the sun to literally stand still. The earth stopped spinning so that Israel could go in and finish the job. Now, if that doesn't drive home the point that this was a miraculous work of God, I mean, when God is taking out the enemy through hailstones, when he literally causes the sun to stand still in the sky so you can finish the job, it becomes clear to you and everyone else around you that the victory belongs to the Lord. And so Joshua says, God has been there. He's fought these battles for us, as you know and are well aware of. And so, with regards to the land that I've already divided of the nations that still remain, I find that interesting. We see this in verse 4. Joshua had already allotted these portions of land of the nations that still remain. They haven't been driven out yet, but Joshua is so confident of Israel's victory that he already says, okay, when you throw them out, this belongs to this tribe and so on and so forth. And so he encourages them in verse four to finish the job. In other words, although we've come a long way, guys, there's still more work to be done. You can't be content to just rest on your laurels. There are battles to be fought. There is land to be taken. There are enemies to be driven out. And Joshua wants them to know that they're not fighting on their own. And so at the end of verse 5, he tells them, and the Lord will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God has promised you. Listen. Just as God drove out their enemies and promised to drive out the ones that remained, he has promised to do the same thing in your life. 
but you've got to step up to the plate. You've got to keep going. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. I'm here to tell you as your pastor that there is more work to be done. I think it's great that you've got a history, and I think it's great that you can look back on all the wonderful things God has done. But no matter how old you are or how long you've known the Lord, there is more land to claim. There are more victories to be had. There are more enemies to drive out. Somebody say amen. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3.12. Let's read this together out loud. He says, not that I have already obtained or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, this is Paul we're talking about. And after walking with the Lord for some 30 years, he says, I haven't arrived yet. I'm still pressing on. There's more that I want to lay hold of. And if Paul could say that, then that should be true of every one of us. We have to keep going. We have to keep pushing. We have to keep moving forward. You can't coast. You can't slow down. Don't stop. Keep going. That's the, the word of the Lord through Joshua in the first part of this address. And then he continues on in verse 6. And he says, and be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Don't associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day, and no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be careful to love the Lord your God. If the first point in Joshua's outline is keep going, then the second one is very similar. It's this, stay the course. That's what I see in this next section. And these verses lie at the heart of Joshua's speech. More than anything, his desire for this next generation is that they would stay the course. Now, how do you do that? Well, according to verse 6, you do it by obeying everything that God has spoken in his word. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 6. Be strong and careful to obey all that it's written in the book and the law of Moses. Maybe some bells are going off in your mind. Does that ring any bells for you? Sound familiar, perhaps? This is almost verbatim what God had spoke to Joshua when he had just assumed the reins of leadership from Moses. We looked at it when we studied chapter 1. Let me remind you of what God said to him on that day. And this is Joshua 1, verse 7. The Lord said, be strong, Joshua, and very courageous, and be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. When you overlay those two speeches, Joshua is just plagiarizing the Lord right here, isn't he? He takes what God said and he just he re reiterates it verbatim. It's as though he had taken what God had said and he had tried him out on it. He had tested the Lord and found that the strategy worked. After a lifetime of experience and trial, it only served to reinforce the soundness of that original advice that he received from the Lord all those years previously. He had obeyed the word of the Lord, 
and he found that it went well with him. Oh, some of you could echo that and say amen to that because you've held on to the Lord's word and it, you've allowed it to serve as a plumb line for your life. And because of that, God has gone before you and he's been with you. And I just want to use this as an exhortation for all of us to, to follow Joshua's counsel here. How many of you want to prosper? Raise your hand. Just wave it around like this. Praise the Lord. Prosperity is a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's what God wants for you. And he gives us his recipe for prosperity right here in his word. You want to prosper and succeed in everything you do? Obey the word of the Lord. Hold to it unswervingly. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Again, meditate on it. Allow it to guide your steps. Allow it to, to shape your worldview and, and inform your decisions. This is how you ensure that you stay on the right path and stay on the right course. Psalm 119, 105 says it like this. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. The psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do I know where to go? How do I know what to do? How do I know what God's will is for my life? It's all right here in the word. You know, this, this book, it's, it's incredible. And, and some of you think, well, you know, that's, that's great that Joshua lived by the word and I enjoy, you know, listening to Bible studies and, and what have you, but you can't really expect me to allow a book that was written thousands of years ago to, to inform my decision-making process. I mean, what could this book that is so old and ancient have to say about my modern life? can't expect me to build my life on it. Well, yes, I can. And I want to give you two reasons why. Two reasons why you should build your life on the word of God, that it should become the foundation for everything you do. Number one, you should, you should build your life on the word because it's timeless. And what I mean by that is it's eternal. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, they have an eternal, timeless quality to them. While the culture changes, while customs change, while traditions change, truth never changes. Amen to that. We live in a day and an age where they're trying to tell us that truth is relative, but it's not. Truth never changes. And so what was true 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago is equally true to this day, and it will still be true tomorrow. And since God's word is truth, it's timeless. It's eternal, and you can build your life on it. There are timeless truths in this book. That's the first reason you should build your life on it. And secondly, you should build your life on God's word, not only because it's timeless, but secondly, because it's timely. Let me explain. You ever been reading through your Bible and, and perhaps in your daily devotions, or maybe you come to church and you hear a Bible study, and it's like you feel like the pastor was reading your mail? You ever hear one of those sermons? Nod your head at me if, if you're with me. You ever open your Bible and your devotions and been like, wow, this is exactly what I needed to hear, and it pertains to your specific situation. I mean, that ever happened to you? How does that happen? It happens because God's word is inspired. That is, it, it is God-breathed. Hebrews says that it's living and active. In other words, this isn't like any other book. You know, it's, it's not just 
dead information. It's just not facts and stories and, and history and poetry, but it's actually a living, breathing entity. And so when you open it, it's opening you. When you read it, God can speak to you through it. And since God knows exactly what you need, he knows how to take his word and apply it to your life in a personal, specific, and relevant way that touches you at the very point of your need. So for those of you who are saying, I want to hear God speak, read your Bible. <laughs> and for those of you who say, I want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> and God speaks to us through his word. And so you can read it. You should read it. It needs to become a daily part of your diet. In fact, I want to challenge every person in this room and who's a part of our church family this next year, I want you to commit to opening the Bible and reading a verse at least a day all year long. You don't have to read chapters. You don't have to read entire books in one sitting, but you've got to get the word in you because it's not, if it's not there, then God has nothing to work with to speak to you. Does that make sense? Somebody say yes. All right, praise the Lord. Then we need to commit to reading the word. Now, if obeying the word is what keeps you on the right path, then we need to also talk about something that gets us off course, and that is compromise. And we see this in verse 7. After telling them to hold to the word and obey the word, he says, don't associate with the nations that remain among you, nor do invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. God had called Israel to separate themselves from the surrounding nations, not to intermarry with them, not to build alliances with them. Why? Is God exclusive? Is, is that the deal? Or, uh, or what's going on here? And the, and the answer is this. He wanted there to be a, a distinction between the Israelites, a people who followed God and from all the surrounding peoples so that they would see the, the value of, of what happens in a people's life when they give themselves to the Lord. So he asked them to maintain their purity in that way. And Joshua's fear expressed here is that in this new season of prosperity and peace, Israel might grow lax in that stance and begin to associate and intermingle with the peoples around them. Over time, he could see how that association would then lead to, to alliances forming. And ultimately, it would result in them bowing down and worshiping these foreign gods. Incidentally, if you trace the history of the Jewish people. We know that this is point, in fact, exactly what ended up happening. Under the reign of King Solomon, he began to marry many foreign women as a, a means of forming alliances with these surrounding nations. And that was a popular thing to do in those days. But over time, what ended up happening is those women brought with them their customs, and they brought with them their idols, and they introduced idolatry to Israel, and it led to their subsequent downfall. It started out so innocent, seemingly, but that's how compromise works. It's a slippery slope, and its danger, I think, lies in its subtlety. What's the big deal? We build some alliances, <laughs> and that's always how it goes. Compromise never feels like a big deal at the time, but, but it always ends in disaster. You see, the devil is so smart. If he loses the battle for your soul, and he can't get you to just throw your life away, he doesn't give up. He doesn't, you know, 
dust off his hands and walk away. No, no, no. He redoubles his efforts and he begins to focus on trying to get you to make small concessions, knowing that with each decision or concession or compromise, you are being carried further and further away from the Lord. You've heard that saying, it's so common. You give the devil an inch and he'll take a mile. Well, guess what? It's absolutely true. And that's why it's so important that we avoid compromise even in the smallest way. Just as Israel had been called to be separate and to be holy, we too have been called to keep watch over our souls and to pursue the Lord. Hebrews 2.1 says it like this. Let's read this together out loud. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. I've known very few Christians who, you know, in a day or in a decision, a moment of weakness, just turn and cold turkey, walk away from the Lord. But I've known many over the years who have drifted away. And the dangerous thing about drifting, again, is that it's imperceptible. You oftentimes hardly even realize that it's happening. Those of you who spend time in the ocean know that if the current is strong, you can paddle out at one part of the beach and you just get carried along with the current and before you know it, you can end up blocks away from when you, where you entered the ocean. And that's exactly what happens when we compromise. Over the course of time, you get further and further off course until one day you wake up and you're miles from where you started and you think, how did I get here? And the answer is, you drifted. So Joshua says, watch out for compromise. Hold fast to the Lord. And then he tells us the best way to avoid compromise in verse 8. He says, hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Do you want to avoid compromise? Then learn how to cling to Jesus. The words hold fast there, they can also be translated as cleave or cling. Now here's what's really cool. That's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. However, in that context, it refers to the intimacy that's shared between a husband and his wife. There God declares, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So the answer is, you want to avoid Drifting off course, you make sure that you're so close to Jesus that nothing can come between you. That's how closely you need to be with the Lord. The goal should never be to see how close to the line we can get without crossing it. The goal should always be to draw so close to Jesus that you're not even aware where the line is. Amen? He goes on in verse 11 and he summarizes, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. Ah, oh, this is what God's really after. He's after your heart. We think that what God wants is, you know, just our obedience. But at the end of the day, what God's really after is your love. He wants your heart. The obedience is a byproduct of the love. In fact, one time Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? What do I need to do to please God? What do I need to do to get to heaven? You know, there's 613 commandments, there's all of the laws, and, and, and then on top of that, they had books and books of other laws that you were supposed to keep, and the, this lawyer says, what's the most important one? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. It's not about what you do, it's about who you love. Obedience, again, is just the byproduct of that love, and when you really love the Lord, 
Obeying him will be easy. As 1 John 5, 4 says, his burdens, you won't find them burdensome when you give him your heart. Now in verse 12, Joshua goes on to outline some of the consequences that would come if Israel chose not to follow the Lord. They got off course. He says, if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you can be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good land which the Lord your God has given to you. What's interesting here is that the punishment he describes isn't so much God coming down on the Israelites as it is him just removing his hand and allowing them to experience the fruit of their own choices. Okay, if this is the path you're going to choose in your willful defiance, you won't surrender to me, then go ahead. But it's going to be in pain. And this is such an important point that we need to highlight, especially to our young people today. Sin is a cruel master. I mean, it always promises more than it delivers. It writes checks that it can't cash, if you know what I mean. It promises pleasure, but produces pain. It promises freedom, but only produces slavery. It promises happiness, but only produces sorrow. Many of us have learned those lessons the hard way. The thing you thought was going to bring you freedom, it ended up entangling you and and causing you to experience bondage. It's trapped you, and now you find yourself in these chains, and you're thinking, how can I get free? The The very thing I thought would give me freedom has robbed me of my peace, and it's enslaved me. Well, if that's you today, then let me just say this. You cry out to the Lord. For if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And Jesus said that he came to set at liberty those who were held captive by the enemy. And so just one word of crying out to the Lord can set you free. Jesus wants to set you free tonight. You don't have to be a slave to your sin anymore. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You guys need to come alive. We're talking about freedom in the house of the Lord tonight. God wants to set some people free. And so the Lord can set you free, but sin is a a, a cruel slave master. So the exhortation again is to keep going, and these are all essentially the same thing, said three different ways. Keep going, he says. And then in the second part, he says, stay the course. And then the third key, if you want to finish strong in your faith race, then you can't ever quit. Don't quit. You want to fill that in. That's the third point in our outline tonight. And we see this in verses 14 through 16. Joshua begins, he says, Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, So he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he had given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. You can't quit. The only way to fail is to stop, to give up, and to quit. 
And I love this part of the speech because in so many ways, he comes full circle and he ends right where he began. He began his speech by reminding the Israelites of God's faithfulness to them in the past. And here he ends it by once again reminding Israel of God's faithfulness in fulfilling all of the promises he had ever made over them. And just as God had been faithful in their lives, you need to see how he's been faithful in your life. You know, Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Let's read this last verse together out loud. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. When you say amen, you're saying so be it. So when you say amen, you and someone's praying, amen, so be it, Lord. Let it be so. Let it be so. And when you claim a promise and you amen that promise, you're creating the atmosphere for God to duplicate that miracle in your life. And so Joshua says, God has fulfilled every promise. And what he did for them, he's also done for you. You just need a minute to think about it. I mean, if you were to take everything in Joshua's life and summarize it, you might summarize it in this way. God has been faithful to me. That's what Joshua's life stood as a testimony to. It was a monument to the faithfulness of God. I mean, he could have filled a book with all the stories and ways in which God had proved his faithfulness to him. You know, come to think of it, that's exactly what he did. He filled a book, the book called Joshua. Amen? When Joshua comes on the scene, there are five books that make up the Bible. They were all written by Moses, his predecessor, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But th by the time Joshua exits the scene, there is a sixth book that becomes part of the canon. It is the book of Joshua. And here's what's beautiful. Just as God was writing a story through Joshua's life, there's another sense in which you are writing a story. You're writing a story with your life, and, and every day a new chapter gets added. Paul said it like this. He said that we are, and this is in 2 Corinthians 3, 2. He said that we are living epistles, known and read by all men. Isn't that interesting? Epistles. That's what these books in the New Testament are, like Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians. Those are epistles. They're letters. And Paul says, you're a living letter, known and read by all men. And, and so the question becomes, what kind of story do you want to tell with your life? And at the end of this chapter, this speech, Joshua says, you can write one of two kinds of stories. You're either going to serve as an example to follow, or you're going to serve as a warning to avoid. Which do you want to be? Joshua shows us how to finish strong. Not because he was perfect, don't think that. No, but because he kept going. Because he stayed the course. And because he didn't quit. I want to say this again. The only way to fail tonight is to quit. And my job as your pastor is to encourage you to keep going. There's more. More that the Lord wants you to experience. He takes us in degrees and in measures to greater and deeper places. No matter what you've obtained or experienced, there's, there's more. He's given us every blessing 
in the spiritual realms. It all is part of your divine inheritance. There's more of him that he wants you to encounter. But you can't quit. You've got to keep going. You've got to stay the course. You've got to promise that you're not going to quit. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.